Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Immigration and what to do about the southern border will occupy Congress this week. Lawmakers hope to actually read the purported bill and maybe get the issue off the dime here. Here with a look ahead on Capitol Hill on this and other matters, Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And is it going to be immigration, immigration, immigration this week? Because the House is on recess after this week, fair to say? Well, I think that's going to be one of the big themes for sure. And the bill that will be before the Senate that they hope to vote on sometime this week, at least hold a procedural vote, is something that's been in the work for a long time with members behind closed doors trying to hammer out some sort of agreement, take it back to the full Senate and see what they can get done. But there are a lot of things working against it, both the former president, Donald Trump, who has said he doesn't like it, and Mike Johnson, who even before the text had been released, said it was dead on arrival in his chamber. So we'll be watching to see what they can get done. The Senate changed its schedule, came back a little early. Democrats said they weren't going to go to their retreat down in Mount Vernon so that they could focus on this bill and on this issue. Wow. So no one really knows the details of the bill then at this point. Well, they'll be reading over what they have and and trying to figure that out. I mean, one of the things that's been a dynamic is people have been reacting to a bill that frankly doesn't exist on paper. Ideas do, concepts do, people are talking, but how this is written is really important. And a comma here, they've said, or a word there can change the meaning. And I think that's what will be key is people reading this, seeing what it does and deciding how to vote with these political pressures surrounding it. And from what I remember of the immigration reform so many years ago, I think when the Reagan presidency was there, it's much more visible, like the southern border, the endless loops of footage on cable television and so forth, paints a very different picture for people than maybe they were aware of 40 years ago. And so is that driving some of the thinking, just the fact that this is politically explosive and there's lurid pictures coming over all the time on TV? So I would say yes to that with the visits that politicians have been making to the border, including Speaker Johnson and a group of Republicans earlier this year. But then also we've seen these efforts to send people coming across the border elsewhere in the country. And that seemed to have had an impact as well, whether it's in the New York City area or Chicago area. I think people are seeing it differently because it's it's closer to their area, which is one of the things that the southern politicians and southern border politicians were thinking and, and helping to create that. So I do think there's more understanding about this. There's more focus on it. It is rising in consciousness as an issue in the election. So all that is factoring in to make it top of mind for lawmakers who haven't really done much on this question in a big way in a long time. Yeah, and there's a lot of pieces of immigration. There's how you operate the courts. That's who it is that you want to come in. It's asylum policy. It's also border security, which is only a piece of immigration. So I don't pity them for trying to get all that. Everyone's satisfied in something they write there. And there's a few other things, though, going on. The House is doing a health bill. Tell us more what the prospects there are. Yeah, this is a piece of legislation that is coming up under, you know, pretty normal circumstances where they're trying to prohibit federal health programs from using cost-effective measurements for medical treatments that place different values on patients' lives. So I think they call it quality-adjusted life years, which is a concept that's been out there for a little bit. So this is, you know, slowly chipping away at things that House Republicans would like to see run differently. They think that the federal government can do this without using these sorts of values, uh, especially when when it comes to seniors or people with disabilities. That's what some of the proponents of the legislation have said. So that's a bill we'll see moving at some point this week. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan. He's deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And the uh, appropriations, of course, people would like to see that done. 
And already we're, you know, getting into the second week of February, and we only have until the first week in March until the current CR expires. The question comes up over and over again. In this week, what will we see, if anything? We may not see anything in front of us, but we've seen some progress behind the scenes. The top appropriators on the House and the Senate agreed on how to divvy up that top line that they've had for a while to each of the 12 bills. That lets the people in charge of those 12 bills write them. They have four they need to get done by March 1st, which if they got to it and really worked hard, they could probably make that happen and then see if they could process it through the House and the Senate. They'd have one more week to do the other eight. So we've heard that people in charge of these bills may not be happy with their allocation, but they're trying to work through them, trying to work with their counterparts in the other chamber and get things done. That's right. There's two deadlines. There's March 2nd, I believe it is, and March 9th. And so there's only a week more between the two of them. So really, they have 12 bills in four weeks, you might say. Right. It's a heavy lift. And I I think that's what appropriators have said. The sooner you get us top lines and then lines for each bill, we can get this done. Um, But there's still a lot of details to work out on these 12 bills, what to include and then what else might ride along with it. And there are things that have to do with the District of Columbia, a committee vote on the RFK Stadium bill. People watching all the sports team changeovers that are happening now. What's going on there? Right. I mean, there's been efforts here because of the way that the land under under RFK basically is controlled and who controls it and interest in doing something to help revitalize that space. Longer term, that could lead to a new stadium, maybe in D.C., which may not be possible under current arrangements. This was stalled for a long time because of the Washington football team's ownership, which changed obviously last year. And now there's a new coach, too. So this is a bill that has a little bit of a path to go, but interesting to see this vote scheduled. Yeah. And that coach came from the Cowboys. And so maybe the new stadium will have an even bigger jumbotron than the cowboys have which i think is acres and acres of real estate hanging there so uh, we'll see if that could happen and also the tax bill uh, the house you know did something on uh, r&d tax write-offs that companies can have of changing it back to the one-year write-off instead of the 20 percent per year write-off what are the prospects there for the senate So that bill passed with a wide bipartisan margin under a procedure that didn't allow changes. So it was a take it or leave it. The House took it, sent it over to the Senate. Now, senators do want to maybe make changes here, whether that's in the committee or on the floor. We'll have to see if they are able to make changes that they want to make on different areas. Uh, The House also is looking at some point holding a vote on the salt cap, which was a big issue not addressed by the bill. That's how much in state and local tax deductions you can take, which in high tax areas like the D.C. area can affect your tax bill quite significantly. So we may see action on that as well. Whether that gets through the Senate, we'll have to see. I remember when SALT stood for strategic arms limitation talks. I guess that's I'm dating myself on that one. And I wanted to check in, too, on FAA reauthorization. It's kind of important, but it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. It has been. It was one of the big bills coming into this Congress, and the House has passed a version. The Senate has been stalled at the committee level for quite some time. We've heard positive signs that this might be the week it finally gets out of the committee with Tammy Duckworth, who oversees the aviation portion of the Commerce Committee, thinking that she might have a path forward on that. That's another March 8 deadline to do something about that authorization. They've extended it two times already. They would potentially do that again if the big bill isn't ready or doesn't get through both chambers. But that is an issue that's been important and lingering out there for a bit. Yeah, Tammy Duckworth was a helicopter pilot during the Iraq War, so she's interested in aviation. And aviation itself has been in the news so much lately with the need for more air traffic controllers and the need for modernizing oversight of aircraft manufacturing apparently is needed when doors fly off. So a lot riding on the FAA, you might say. 
Absolutely. The Boeing incident has definitely drawn more attention to the agency and has, I think, kind of given more impetus for Congress to do something here. All right. So a busy week anyway. Lauren Duggan is deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm-hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.